The following program was recorded live on September 2nd, 2009. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Hey, welcome to Second Opinion Live on Reach MD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. And I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This program is a little different from others on Reach MD. There are two hosts. And we're looking for your feedback right now on the phone, on the web, or on Twitter. Tweet us. We're covering topics across the field of medicine, talking to experts you want to hear from. Four years after Hurricane Katrina, we're taking an inside look at the extreme conditions, medical decisions, and aftermath of Katrina at a devastated medical center in New Orleans. Dr. Sherry Fink is the author of this essay, published by ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine. She'll join us in a bit. Our number is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Give us a call. Yeah, we have a surplus of great topics today, Matt. First, we've heard a lot about pay for performance for us, the doctors. But should our patients get incentives for holding up their end of the bargain? Some thoughts here coming up in this show. And we'll also visit the ReachMD forum to pay our respects to Massachusetts Senator Edward M. Kennedy. He spent more than four decades in the Senate, and health care for all Americans was never far from his mind. Spend a few good minutes with us recognizing the late Senator Kennedy. Our number again, 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-MD-1-REACH. Give us a call. So first, our regular feature, ReachMD's That's News to Me, reviewing curious news headlines from the world of medicine. Charles Darwin called it an evolutionary artifact, and we've carried the torch for about 150 years, thinking that the appendix was nothing more than trouble. In fact, that quote-unquote worthless sack might be a lot more useful than we thought. Now, my appendix was a lot of trouble. It was taken out when I was 12. But from the Journal of Evolutionary Biology, researchers, researchers report the appendix has been around for at least 80 million years. That's as long as some of my office nurses have been working for me. <laughs> nice. And, <laughs> and it, this suggests that it actually may have a more critical role in human systems. Because research published in late 2007 by this team, led by Dr. William Parker at Duke, posits that the appendix serves as a safe house for certain mm -hmm. healthy bacteria as it is isolated from the rest of the gut and it can aid in digestion and protect against disease. That's interesting. I mean, we've heard about this, at least rumored among uh, uh, surgical groups for a long time, uh, but now it's starting to become a little bit more uh, than hearsay, I would say. But it's interesting that when we look at people who have appendicitis, you know, anyone who gets an appy, they don't really suffer, suffer these ill effects when they get them taken out. So how do we prove that it's useful, per se? I think it's an interesting question, but, you know, I asked a couple of gastroenterologist friends because I had never heard of this because mm -hmm. I was looking stuff up for the show, and they seem to know it. They seem to say, yeah, it holds. It's a reservoir of healthy bacteria. When you get wiped out in an intestinal disease where your bacteria gets wiped out, it can get repopulated from the bacteria held in the appendix. And I think they're also saying these, uh, at this point that uh, there are some studies indicating that it has a role in generating and directing white blood cells. So this clear immune function is going to be an important thing that they factor in when they talk okay, about it. Okay, so the surgeons who are listening are going to hate us. Keep your appendixes, people. They, they're helpful. That's what, this, this, that's what this is saying, I think. It is the thing that they're saying, but we have to ask the question, is there anything that we can do to limit the number of cases of appendicitis now that we know that it has a more uh, definitive immune function? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Perhaps somebody can call and give it to us. I, I had no choice when I was 12. It was just doubled over in pain. And next thing I knew, I, was, uh, I had stitches or clamps or something. At that You're just too sanitary was the problem. And yeah. that is part of the theory. They're saying that there's way yeah. too much sanitation going on, and that's what's causing some of this immune dysregulation. Okay. Well, everybody be dirtier and keep your appendixes. That is and the moral. I, I think this is a great article. I think we, there's, there's parts of ourselves that we need to look at and not just go by old thought that this is, this is not a throwaway necessarily. Now it's your turn. 
The ReachMD poll wants you to voice your opinion and vote. ReachMD XM160 now presents The ReachMD Poll. In sports, a coach can only do so much to prepare players, but when it's game time, the players have to execute. And that's a pretty close analogy to primary care, I'd have to say. We give advice and therapy, but it's the patient who ultimately executes the plan in a lot of, in a lot of the time. Are incentives needed to foster more patient responsibility? That's the week's, quest- the week's question for us. Log on to ReachMD.com and cast your ballot and see what your peers think. Well, I'm going to take one side of this issue with you, man. I'm going to say, yeah, I, I think lifestyle changes are, are important, like in people with diabetes. And, and incentives work. Um, you know, if, if you get an allowance, you're going to cut the grass. Um, if you pay people to do something, they're going to do it. So we need people to be personally responsible, and we've all seen it with our patients. If there's no incentive to do anything except like, okay, you'll feel healthier, maybe it's not enough. Maybe they need something like a toaster. Agreed. <laughs> a toaster might be a, an interesting kind of incentive. But we have to also look at the, the doctor-patient trust. If you're going to add incentives into the picture, we have to almost expect that patients will be less candid about uh, certain habits if they lose those incentives. Maybe they'll lie. Like uh, Steve Feldman, who we interviewed on this show, mm-hmm. said that in his study, patients lied about their medication usage. Well, you know, there's an interesting perspective that we've read this week and also an, an article on a study. The perspective was from uh, Medicaid uh, in West Virginia where uh, Medicaid patients, they did an experiment where they, were, they had three requirements. They had to take their medications, okay. they had to keep appointments, and they had to stay out of the ER unless it was truly necessary. Don't ask me how they figured that one out. <laughs> but if they were non-compliant, their benefits would be eliminated or reduced. I don't think that that's fair. It's, it's not good to take their benefits away. So you think negative reinforcement is, uh, is ultimately not the way to, to go about this? Right. And you can counterpoint that with a study that we have from the New England Journal of Medicine in February of 2009, a randomized trial on smoking cessation. And the rates of abstinence were dramatically higher in a group that was incentivized. They were educated and they were given money because, you know, smoking, I forget the exact number. Uh, it's, well, here it is in the paper. It's $3,400 a year. It costs an employer mm-hmm. uh, and patients smoke. So why not offer them half of that to stop smoking? Okay. But what, what would be the cutoff bar? I mean, how much incentive is, is going to do the job and how much is too much? And who gives, the in, who gives these incentives? I don't know. These are things that need to be talked about. But I think part of the key point here is that negative incentives don't work. You don't want to take away people's health care benefits because they're not following the rules. Because then, you, then, then it's, it, it, it's a losing situation. It's, it's, it's a setup for failure. You take away their benefits, then they're going to get even sicker. And we all pay for these sick people. We want to somehow find a positive way to get people to cooperate and be responsible. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out a way in which a positive incentive wouldn't ultimately translate into a negative one for those that don't follow uh, the program, as it were. They stand to lose. Yep. We need to look at this and uh, look at it carefully. But I think it's something important for the future of health care. People need to be responsible. Well, what's your reaction? Share your thoughts with us on our website, ReachMD.com, where you too can vote on the ReachMD poll. All right, moving on to the ReachMD news quiz. Here's the deal. We'll examine an issue in the news, break it down, and come up with a question getting to the core of the issue. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into my own hospital and I've seen staff members, doctors, nurses, administrators, you name it, standing right outside the door smoking. (laughs) I, I have to walk through a cloud of smoke. And I'm sure many of our listeners out there, you've seen it too. Personally, I find it disgusting. It sends a horrible message to our patients. We're encouraging to quit smoking when we're out there. And not to mention, it harms our own health. So today we're going to focus on smoke-free hospital campuses. And one state that may be more of a pace setter for tobacco habits than any other. And you're not going to believe the one that I talk about. It's North Carolina. There's been a movement in the Tar Heel State to increase the number of smoke-free hospital campuses. So today's question is, 
How many hospital campuses in North Carolina still allow smoking? We'll give you some time to think about it. The answer later in the show. Okay. And if you're just joining us, uh, put your cigarette out and you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, alongside with Dr. Matt Bernholtz, both non-smokers. Both non-smokers. But just do as we do and not just do as we say and not as we do. Our number here is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. MD-1-REACH. That's the number on ReachMD XM160. If you've got something on your mind, do give us a call. All right. It's been four years since Hurricane Katrina made landfall, wreaking havoc along the Gulf Coast in New Orleans. The infamous levees broke, the city descended into floodwaters and chaos. And as the floodwaters rose, the medical staff at Memorial Medical Center wondered whether help would eventually come to evacuate their patients to safety. But as the days dragged on with supplies short and no help in sight, the medical team at Memorial faced some truly extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, and in the end, one doctor and two nurses stood accused of euthanizing four patients. The grand jury in the case chose not to indict them, but much remained unknown about what went on inside the Memorial Medical Center during those days. So today we're joined by Dr. Sherry Fink, reporter for the independent nonprofit group ProPublica. Over the past two and a half years, she's been investigating the post-Katrina effects at Memorial Medical Center. Her story can be found on the ProPublica website, and is the lead article in the August 30th edition of the New York Times Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Fink. Thank you for having me. Uh, welcome. So the first question that I have, you yourself, you're an MD, PhD. You've covered medicine from war zones across the world. But what we want to know is how, when, and why did you move into this assignment, per se? Well, I guess I found out about this story just like most Americans did when it was splashed all over the headlines uh, when a respected doctor and two respected ICU nurses were arrested for alleged mercy killings. And it just was such an intriguing story. And having done aid work in a number of um, war and disaster areas, uh, I'd never heard of anything like this coming up in my experience. So I really wanted to understand it. And what I realized was that... Uh, you know, there was a lot of coverage of the story, but the question of what really happened had never really been answered. So that's what I set out to look at. I mean, and looking at things in retrospect is, of course, easier than being in the moment. But well, let's talk a, just for a minute or two, if you would, um, for some of our listeners who may not have all the facts, just set the scene for us as to what happened. I mean, uh, Katrina hit, there was a flood. Give sure. us a few lines. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, we need to cast ourselves back into that moment to understand what these healthcare professionals were, um, what sort of state they were in and what, what they were facing when they made the decision to, as two of them have come out and, and told me, to hasten deaths, to intentionally hasten the deaths of some of their patients. So what had happened was Katrina hit uh, the hospital. This was Memorial Medical Center, a uh, I think it was a 327-bed community hospital, very well-respected community hospital in New Orleans, was hit by Katrina, uh, but did fairly well just by the storm. Uh, it had some broken windows, water damage, et cetera, but they were on backup power. They were a functioning hospital after this occurred. Although, interestingly, and this is, I think, a problem for many American hospitals that we really need to look at, a lot of times the generator systems are not set up to power air conditioning systems. And this becomes a problem. Even if you don't end up having a catastrophe like in New Orleans, um, you can get into a lot of trouble with your patients even just when it's uh, 95 degrees outside and you've got 
no air conditioning. Um, but getting back to the story, so, so that it got a bit hot, but uh, things were going fairly well. And then, as we all know, the city started to flood. And so uh, the storm hit early Monday morning of uh, August 29, 2005. Tuesday morning, the water around the hospital started to rise. And then we had the second vulnerability of American hospitals, I think, which is that a lot of times these backup power systems in hospitals that are in flood areas are sometimes in the basement or parts of them are in the basement. And that was the case with this hospital. They had a um, electrical transfer switches were be- below ground. and uh, Sorry, not below ground. They were very low and they were vulnerable to water getting above a certain level. So they... Th- this, the team, the staff, the uh, hospital executives, and their incident command uh, team realized that this meant that they needed to get the hospital closed because they were going to possibly lose their their backup generators. So they you know, started. Mm-hmm. I have to say that that right there brings up a really important, almost pillar point here, in that it seems when you're looking retrospectively at it that they didn't have much in the way of contingency plans for flooding, for water, which is very strange when we're looking at New Orleans. I mean, they were expecting in all their, in all their disaster plans from what, the, what we do put down that they would have roads, that they wouldn't have canals, and that they would have electricity, um, and that their generators being on the lower floors indicates that they really weren't taking into account flooding. And I just find that fascinating uh, when you're looking at it retrospectively. Yeah, although, you know, that that was in their uh, joint commission hospital plans, which I was able to, uh, disaster plans, excuse me, joint commission obviously requires hospitals to have these, and they've they've changed. Uh, I think there's a recent set of them that is different from, that they're different now than they were at that time. Yeah. Can, can we can we change tack here for one second? And, sure. And I don't want to stop you on your story, but let's get down to the action of the people involved and, and what what actually went on and, and how hard it is to look back on that and, and make judgments. Well, sure. So so th- I think one of the big decisions that they ended up making at that moment was that uh, how, how they would have to prioritize who would get out first, who would get the slots on evacuation helicopters that would start to come. And, um, and so that was another key decision. And they, they decided, they made a decision that the DNR patients would, would go last. And that ended up having, you know, a ripple effect later because when they did lose power, um, th- th- those patients didn't do well. And and uh, a couple days in, with with the chaos of the state and local and federal uh, rescue efforts, there had not been a lot of resources, helicopter air resources, directed toward this hospital, and they weren't able to get patients out very quickly. And some of the very sickest patients who the staff ended up triaging to go last in order were quite sick by the time that their time would have come to be evacuated. It seems like that really came off as a, uh, that particular point, uh, starting with the suggestion about uh, having patients with do not resuscitate orders going last, really had this butterfly flapping its wings uh, phenomenal effect. Um, the way that you you phrased it and 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 covered it in your piece, uh, that this really had a momentous effect. What started off as just a simple suggestion and probably was considered an afterthought compared to a lot of the other things that they were having to deal with, uh, became one of the most uh, um, impact laden decisions that they would have later on. Yes, it's true. It's true. Um, and I think it also points up an, another issue with, well, lots of issues with triage. Well, first of all, I don't know how many of the listeners out there have 
had to think about doing disaster triage, but that's probably something that all doctors now should really, you know, bone up on. A lot of hospitals, this hospital had, I think, some uh, triage wristbands, and they went to try to find them, and then they didn't have enough, so they made up their own system about who would get the first uh, priority for for different evacuation resources. And uh, another thing is just that we don't have good data on how do you predict which of your patients, this, this hospital had a, an 80-some bed uh, long-term acute care unit that leased the seventh floor of the hospital. And these were a lot of the patients who died and, and who, who's, who were given these drugs that uh, became the focus of so much attention. These were LTAC patients. Um, there's not good data on how you triage patients with chronic illnesses. You know, most triage protocols are, are made with the thought of a, you know, a mass casualty incident with, with a lot of injuries. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me change tack for one second. Is, is anything coming out of this in the way of a conversation for physicians about the ethics of behaving in a situation like this and, 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 and the protections for physicians? Is that what is going on now with Dr. Poe? Um, I understand she's out speaking about things like this. Yeah, well, that's true. So Dr. Poe, what happened with her is that she was arrested. This is Dr. Anna Poe, a, a head and neck surgeon, otolaryngologist, I can say, for this audience. Um, and uh, she she was arrested. A grand jury did not indict her for the four deaths that she was accused of, of uh, causing. She was arrested on, on uh, second-degree murder for four, four patients. And then the, the story really went away, and then she started becoming a real activist to try to promote across the country disaster liability reform is one of the things that she's campaigned for very successfully in Louisiana, got three laws on the books that protect against civil, most almost all civil suits for anyone who serves in a disaster. It's sort of like a Good Samaritan law, but for people who draw salaries, uh, people who are employees of a hospital, but get stuck working in the disaster, they would have protections against uh, legal liability for their good faith work. And even some protection against uh, um, a criminal prosecution, because now there's a law in the books in Louisiana, thanks to her, that says that, uh, th- that the DAs are strongly advised or prosecutors are strongly advised to put a case before a panel of peers, a, a medical review panel, uh, have them look at it before any kind of decision about prosecuting a, a physician or a nurse would be made. So that's one thing that she's campaigned a lot for. And By the way, she, is she still practicing? Oh, yes, she is. She is. She's got her so DEA did, license, so did, so everything. Did, this didn't damage her career? Well, I think it actually, um, she's a big hero. Uh, she, uh, a lot of people had a huge amount of sympathy for her, and understandably so, because you know, you look at the failures, the larger failures of of preparedness and response when it comes to Katrina, and the person who gets arrested is a doctor who is trying to do her best. You know, there was a lot of outrage in the medical community. So she's got a huge amount of support um, amongst other physicians, and then even in Louisiana, in New Orleans, it became very, very, her, her prosecution became extremely unpopular. So I think that a lot of people there feel uh, very positively toward her. She's gotten uh, recognition from her medical school. She was promoted. She was uh, a, a nominated for a national award for, that has to do with uh, medical ethics. So, But, you know, her version of the narrative, when she's out speaking and promoting these legal protections, 
really skips over the whole question of euthanasia and the question of hastening death. I mean, she basically, in her talks, just goes right from the incredibly heroic and difficult work that the staff did up until Thursday, September 1st, and then suddenly everybody's flying out on helicopters, and there's no mention of of these injections. Of, should, and, should we be talking about that, that in the na- on a national level? I think we should be talking about what really happened. We should understand that at some point, now she still insists, her version of the story, and she doesn't, she declines to, she chooses not to talk about uh, the events of Thursday. Well, what did happen? Um, Can you clarify what happened for our, our listeners exactly? Sure, I mean, but she, I'd just like to say, yeah. in, in fairness to her, because she's got some, some civil lawsuits pending, that she she has said only that she did inject some patients and that uh, her goal was to treat pain. And what I found was that, and, and, and to, um, uh, I think, pain and, and uh, discomfort or something like that, and uh, anxiety maybe. And, and my... My um, my research showed why two people stepped forward and told me that they participated also in injecting patients with morphine and midazolam, and that they did it with the intention of hastening death. and And so they have come out and explained why it was that they made that choice, and it's a choice that they stand by. They very much um, feel that it was the right decision, and it was what they would want done for them if they were in a similar circumstance. And so what I also found was that it wasn't just four patients who received these drugs. It was a dozen and a half patients mm-hmm. and not at, who died with these drugs in their systems. Seventeen of them were injected. When the helicopters finally did come to the hospital, when there was a massive evacuation effort going on, when these people, you know, when it was their time to, to, to be first in the triage um, uh, scenario because, you know, everybody else was getting out. So eventually the DNRs and the Category 3 patients would have been taken out. But at that very moment was when these injections were given. And all of this must have changed your views, I have to think. I mean, you've seen the accolades. You've seen the public response over time. Uh, you've seen the the public policies that have changed, but you're you're in a, a very unique position after having done the investigative research that you have. I mean, I hate to put you on the hot seat, but what are your personal feelings towards uh, the outcomes and what's happening? And we're limited on time, I have to tell you. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, I I just think that we need to know what happened, and I think that there's a very di- difference. I'm not a lawyer, obviously. The MD and the PhD are enough, but uh, there's a difference between whether something fits into the definition of a crime or a violation of medical ethics. And then what we do about it is a whole separate question. And when you put yourself back in the context, these were exhausted doctors. Dr. Poe, a surgeon, had slept less than she'd ever slept in her career, she told me. So think about the types of decisions that you would make if you were 100 degrees for, I think it was three days at that point, uh, an hour of sleep a night if you're lucky, um, some of these doctors explained their decision to me in that they were very afraid. They were afraid for their patients. They, they heard there was lawlessness. They could hear gunshots going off. They thought if we leave and leave these dying patients or very sick patients, maybe somebody's going to break in and rape them. I mean, that, that's Precisely. how one doctor described it. They didn't leave. They stayed there. They stayed well, in the hospital. They could have They left. stayed yeah. until all the patients either got out or, or had died, yes. All right. Well, thank you very much, and uh, uh, this story is available at ProPublica.org and in the August 30th edition of the New York Times Magazine. Dr. Sherry Fink, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.
this is a great story that's still four, four years later, we're still thinking about what happened and how, how would you react? I don't know. It, the question, the the piece raises a lot of questions, and I and I really appreciate that about it. I mean, it's four years later, but we have a lot to talk about again, and and we'll keep talking about it. And, and thank you again, uh, Sherry Fink, for joining us. So, from that, let's get you the answer to the news quiz. As you may recall, we're taking a drive down Tobacco Road, looking at hospital campuses in North Carolina. The question is, how many still allow smoking on the premises? They've made great progress in North Carolina, Michael. And let's be honest, if they can make progress there given the influence of big tobacco, it probably can be made anywhere. So the answer to today's to today's question is, I'm going to tell you it's a stunner, zero. No hospitals in North Carolina allow smoking. Hey, let's hear it for North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> a group called the North Carolina Prevention Partners has teamed up with North Carolina Hospital Association with a funding grant from Duke to get this done. As of early July, all acute care hospitals have voluntarily passed 100% tobacco-free campus 100%. policies. 100%. 100%. Now, you know, if we're going to look at the latest CDC surveys, and, and admittedly it goes back to 2007, North Carolina has ranked eighth in adult smoking rates at 22.9%. Uh, rounding up the top were Kentucky and West Virginia at uh, 28 and 27 percent, respectively. But if we're looking at the low end, um, it's not too surprising. Utah comes in at about 11.7, and, and California uh, rounds at number two at 14.3. Okay, we were going to make fun of California, and then we realized that, well, people just don't smoke as much out there, and they, they don't need the policy quite as much. But I was going to make fun of them saying, like, wow, you guys eat sprouts, but you smoke. So, Well, what is their policy? It's, it's a much, they have a much more lax policy on smoking at the hospital campuses, don't they? Compared to some other places, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I know in my hospital, um, we have a hundred percent tobacco-free policy, no smoking, and yet I walk out of the parking lot and there's a wall of smoke that greets me every day. It's really not enforced. That's the next problem. Mm. You can have the policy, but you have to enforce it. My hospital doesn't. Hmm. Well, though it is interesting, though, that now that we are looking at uh, more strict policies being put into effect in North Carolina, it's probably going to have a windfall effect for other states, and at least we can look at it and say, well. We're so behind from Europe, uh, from Europe and Asia and so many other factors, but this at least puts us ahead of the game on smoking. And now we can do it with food, like our, our guest David <laughs> Kessler. We can, we can only, my hospital serves garbagey food in the cafeteria to people, and they used to sell cigarettes, actually. Um, so maybe <laughs> hospitals need to shape up their act because it's important. That might be a longer time coming, though. That's it might right. take a little, little while longer to get on the food train. Okay, on the ReachMD Forum, Matt, where we'll close the show today, we're going to be remembering one of the political giants of our time who we just lost, Senator Ted Kennedy, who died on Tuesday, August 25th, from complications related to a malignant glioma. He was the third longest-serving senator in, in history, and Matt, I think it's important that we take a few minutes. Uh, you know, he's been vilified by some of the uh, my fellow physicians as being the guy who's the enemy trying to mm -hmm. shove health care down their throat. But uh, let's talk about some of his accomplishments. I mean, you, can, you can list some of these for us. He's had a lot of accomplishments. I mean, when you put it all into perspective, he's been very, very busy. And this is a person who did go on to call health care the cause of his life. Uh, earlier in his career, uh, I believe AIDS recalled him uh, turning down a, a deal that the President Nixon offered him for universal health care. I think he said at the time that the deal didn't seem generous enough, which I think fascinating. But he's go on, gone on to do all sorts of things. He was recently um, awarded uh, in December, I think, by the Physicians for Human Rights Organization for Outstanding Leadership on the Right to Health. And he's clearly done, been a part of so many different acts. I mean, you've, you've probably seen all the lists of uh, subcommittee things that he's been part of, all the achievements from legislature. 
Well, yeah, he was part of the Women, Infants, and Children's Nutrition Program, Mm -hmm. uh, WIC. He became um, a a champion of the 1978 Declaration of Alma-Ata, which called on the international community and all health and developmental workers to protect and promote the health of all people of the world. That's a pretty big project. Mm. He's also been involved with the uh, uh, Ryan White Care Act, um, for AIDS and uh, lots of lots yeah, of other. The list goes on and on and on. But you know, I think we have to put into perspective. You know, what is what are we going to see uh, come out of the health reform, health reform bills now, at least this year, uh, in the wake of his death? Do you think that there is going to be some kind of effort to push a good bill through in his honor, or do you think there might be like a domino effect by his passing in terms of things are really going to stall? I mean, that's uh, a big question. For I a lot think of we'll have now. to see. I mean, he was really good at getting legislation through the Senate. Um, I think there's enough momentum on this health care bill, and they're going to try and attach his name to it as a memorial. Um, but if we're going to do that, let's, let's really honor the man by getting a, a really decent health care bill that, 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 that takes care of everybody, including physicians and providers. Well, things definitely changed already, didn't they? I mean, because of his virtual disappearance months back. I mean, many think that the health care bill that emerged without his guidance was a lot less bipartisan than he might have pushed for himself. Apparently, he was a megaphone to be able to go between the aisles and, and get support. And, you know, for all, of his, for all of his youthful exuberance, I have to say, in the end, you, you can say to the man, well, he had tons of money and insurance, he didn't care about things, but he really lived yeah. down to his last day. He was he calling his aides, he was, had his family around, he was joking and laughing. He kind of went, as we said, dancing into death, which is the way it's supposed to be for, for most of us. He's bigger than life, uh, and uh, he, he will be missed in our country. Yeah, he definitely will. Well, I think that's about it for us. That's our show here on Second Opinion Live. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about ReachMD on XM160, visit our website at ReachMD.com. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, on Facebook. Call Matt and me personally. We'll answer your calls. We're around. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us this, this time on ReachMD. And see you back at the next show. 